<sighs> hey, Raul, why don't you come here for just a minute? I need a, I need a test dummy. Um, no, <laughs> come on up here. When I was in second grade, uh, there was a kid who was the biggest, <laughs> who was the biggest, toughest kid in the second grade. And uh, he, he, he was so, you know, this is like in the early 60s, and he wore a leather jacket in the second grade. The real biker kind with a belt around the bottom, you know. I mean, this, this was a tough little kid. And he liked to play this game called Mercy. Put your hands up like this. Where you go like this, and then, you, you know, you, you would try to bend him back and forth. And thank you. And he would... Uh, no, we're not, we're not going to play. <laughs> That's why you have sons and sons-in-law, because they're stronger than you. That's the whole idea. But that, that kid uh, loved to play that game. He was consistently challenging people. Hey, let's play. Hey, let's play. You know, because he, he definitely could bend everybody's hands over in the second grade. He was, he was the toughest kid. Back in the day, everybody knew what a man was. Kind of like, like Ben Sutton used to look when he was boxing. <laughs> was your idea, buddy. <laughs> like our theme picture, real men were strong. They were tall, dark, and handsome. They worked hard to support their family. His home was his castle, and he was the king. He ran society through a virtual lock on all elected offices. And then the feminist revolution happened. Some good and some bad. Women made it known that they could take care of themselves. They began to work more outside the home, and they fought for pay equity. They quit pretending that men knew best and demanded an equal, if not dominant, role in the home. They fought the notion that only men could fill certain roles in the workplace and the government, and the invention of sperm banks and in vitro fertilization has rendered the presence of men Virtually unnecessary to some women. Men became the butt of the joke, especially on TV. In one generation, the role of men went from well-defined and superior to indefinite and often inferior. And into this vacuum came new ideas about manhood. A man needs to be in touch with his feelings. He needs to find his feminine side, his sensitive side. He should not attempt to be a leader, but should see men and women as completely equal in all things. He should realize that his natural tendencies are usually wrong, and that women are usually right, and so he should defer to them on many matters, especially in relationships. Once that extreme sense of anti-male sentiment ran its course, a new set of ideas about manhood began to emerge. Manhood thrives only in relationship with other men. There was a phase that was real popular of male drumming. We're going to sit in a circle, and we're going to beat on drums, and we're going to get in touch with our inner whatever. We're going to pass around the talking stick, and we're going to share from our innermost feelings. Manhood thrives when you're your own boss 
became very important in this time frame. Manhood doesn't need the minefield of committed relationship, just sexual gratification. These shifts in secular society also pushed hard on Christianity. Many people have, in the last uh, uh, 30, 40 years, began to reinterpret the Bible to say that there is no mandate of male leadership in the home or the church. Many church denominations have approved of women serving as pastors. Christian men have given in to the secular ideas of equality and inferiority. Desiring to be approved by society, many churches have failed to enunciate what Christian manhood is. And so while many churches still hold marriage in high regard, many men have become so unsure of manhood that they won't even approach women for dating relationships, or with the result being that many Christian singles are not able to form meaningful relationships that lead to marriage. In the next seven weeks, we are going to right the wrongs of the last 40 years. That's a joke, in case you didn't know that. In the next seven weeks, we're going to talk about Christian manhood. And when we get done, all the men in the church... Spiritually, they're going to look like that. <laughs> Physically, maybe not quite so much. <laughs> We're going to talk about Christian manhood in the next seven weeks. I'm going to address it as well as the other three elders, as well as Jason Nightingale and missionary Kurt Jones. We're all going to be talking about Christian manhood. And I'm anticipating that God is going to speak in, in a very good and strong way to us. Now, I realize that better than half of you... Uh, are not men, but that doesn't mean that these sermons will do you no good. Christian men and women both need to have a biblical picture of what a godly man is. Women of any age who are still looking forward to marriage ought to know what a godly man is as they move toward marriage. As a church, we need to consistently choose godly men to lead the church. Young men need to know what to aim for as they become men. And many of the themes that we will talk about are, are broader than just manhood and have an application to everybody in the body of Christ. So today, we're going to begin our study with this theme, uh, the ambitions of the godly men. And we're going to start with this first point from 1 John chapter 2, which is this, the godly man avoids worldly ambitions. The term world is used in the scripture broadly to mean those who are outside the body of Christ. We could also <clears throat> substitute the term society. And certainly uh, societies vary in different parts of the globe. We'll be talking about the American society. Not that it's totally different from every other society, but as a whole, God talks about the world outside being different from the church inside. And 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 uh, clearly define uh, the problem that men uh, have to avoid. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, it is not of the Father, but it's of the world. 
And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Now I need to remind you again that the word lust is not a bad word. It literally means a strong desire or a craving. And sometimes it is used in a positive way in the scripture. But here we would just understand it to be talking about being driven by certain strong desires that are endemic in the world. And the first of those is the lust of the flesh. The godly man avoids a worldly ambition or a worldly drive, first of which is the lust of the flesh. Now, if we ask what are the strong desires of the flesh, it's pretty obvious. Uh, first and foremost, the, the one that is most often turned into sin is sex. God created us with a drive for sexuality, but God says the world is driven by such things as sex. Ungodly men are ambitious for things that feel good, whether it be sex or food. There's a huge trend uh, in recent years toward uh, what we'll call foodieism, <laughs> epicureanism, all kinds of uh, emphasis on food and whatnot. Things that feel good. How about a car stereo? You know, when, when I was a kid, the radio had one speaker, and then at some point it began to be stereo. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. And now your car stereo is nothing unless it's got 16 speakers and a bass driver that can be heard in another time zone. <laughs> and, of course, that's not just about things that feel good. That is also about things that we'll see in a minute that make you look like something. One of the other great pursuits, though, of things that feel good is doing nothing. Ease, comfort, fun. And the thing that we understand here, and you'll understand this more fully as I complete this thought in a minute, but the thing we understand is this. If your life is driven by pleasure, you are not godly. If your ambition in life is to feel good all the time, that is not a godly ambition. That is an ungodly ambition. The second ambition that is put here for us is this, the lust of the eyes. The lust of the eyes. Uh, Men understand that we are tempted with our eyes in a number of ways, uh, only one of which uh, is uh, sexuality. But the lust of the eyes has really moved on from those temptations of the flesh now to things that look good. Ungodly men are ambitious for things that look good. Why is there a new model of, of a car every year? Because it looks good. Oh, you see the lines in that car? That car looks good just sitting still. Shiny cars. Beautiful women. You know, in the Old Testament, Samson, the great strong man, and obviously he was brought down by a woman, his love for a woman. You know what he said about that woman? He said to his parents, Get her for me. For she pleases me. He looked at her and he said, Boy, I want that one. The lust of the eyes. And of course, there are the lusts of the eyes that are a lot better, quote unquote, than a shiny car or a beautiful woman in terms of their righteousness potential. A beautiful house. Maybe a work truck that looks a certain way. 
or maybe even the shiny new computer, the tablet, the laptop, the latest one. Oh, look at that thing. Why do they work to make those things look good? Isn't it about function? It's got to look a certain way. If your life is focused on having the most beautiful things, you are not godly. You are not a godly man if that's what your life is about. The third category here, the pride of life. The godly man avoids worldly ambitions, including the pride of life. Ungodly men are ambitious to be the best. To be the best. Now, you keep listening until I'm all the way done before you say, wait a minute, Pastor Dave, we're supposed to do our best for the Lord. I'll get to that. Former gangster Henry Hill dies. Anybody know who Henry Hill was? You know the movie uh, Goodfellas? The central character in there uh, was based on the life of Henry Hill. Henry Hill was a mobster who eventually got caught for some serious uh, drug uh, offenses. And so in order to avoid going to prison, uh, he turned and he, he ratted out a huge, huge part of the mob and uh, was under witness protection for many years until he kept doing crimes, and then he was just on his own. Now, if you were to say to yourself, why does a mobster be a mobster? You might think of, well, uh, you get money for nothing, or, you know, things like that. You know why Henry Hill was a mobster? The pride of life. Henry Hill spent much of his life as a good fella, believing his last moment could come with a bullet to the back of his head. In the end, he died in the hospital after a long illness. Catch this. Going out, like all the average nobodies, he once pitied. Hill went from a small-time gangster to a big-time celebrity when his life as a mobster turned FBI informant became the basis for the film Goodfellas. In the book and the film, he talks about how hard it was to lead an ordinary life after years steeped in gangster glamour. I had paper bags filled with jewelry stashed in the kitchen. I had a sugar bowl full of Coke next to the bed. Anything I wanted was a phone call away. Hill says in the film, today everything is different. There's no action. I have to wait around like everybody else. I can't even get decent food. Right after I got here, I ordered some spaghetti with marinara sauce. I got egg noodles and ketchup. <laughs> I'm an average nobody. I get to live the rest of my life like a schnook. You understand? He was something when he was a mobster. Whatever he wanted, whenever he wanted it. And he died an average snook. Doesn't the scripture speak about that? Naked I came and naked I will go. If your life is focused on being the best and being better than people, you're living in sin. 
Maybe it's dressing up like the men's warehouse or dressing down in slouch pants because that's what's cool. Maybe you're fanatical about working out so you'll look like Ben Sutton. Love you, buddy. Maybe you put enormous hours into homework so you'll be the valedictorian. Maybe you seek esteem by being the big athlete. Maybe you're like the gymnast on America's Got Talent, 16-year-old girl who said, I just love to be in front of an audience. Well, what's that about? Yeah, they're all clapping for me. Or maybe you're looking for the perfect house, like two entrepreneurs on the House Hunters show who bought an apartment in New York for, or Chicago for $850,000 and then spent $750,000 to remodel it because it did not present a trendy enough image to properly reflect who they were. I fully understand and embrace God's standard of doing your best at whatever you do. But that is doing your best to honor God and fulfill His instruction, not doing your best to prove who you are. If your ambition is to be something or someone, you are living in the pride of the world. You are worldly. Let's translate that not Christly. Now the key word in this passage is the word love. Do not love the world. Elsewhere the scripture says, look, we live in the world. We're in the world. We, we, we have our manner of life here. We have jobs, we have cars, we have homes. We have a church building. There are places in the world where they don't have a church building. They can't afford a church building. It is not worldly to own a church building or to own a home or, or whatever. But the question is, are you loving those things and living for those things? Or are you living for the Lord and just using those things? Sex is not sinful if it's enjoyed in the godly way inside of marriage between one man and one woman. Food is not sinful. It is created by God to sustain us. A shiny car is neither sinful uh, nor righteous, but how we use it makes it sinful or righteous. A beautiful wife, a, a beautiful home, there's nothing wrong with that. Unless that's what you live for. There's nothing wrong with working hard and being recognized for your excellence or achievement, whether it's a barbecue contest or something more substantial. There's nothing wrong with excellence and hard work, and there's nothing wrong with us recognizing that here or where you work or wherever it might be. But if that's what you're living for, if that is your ambition, then you are a worldly man, not a godly man. Listen to what God says elsewhere about this theme. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. That's the rulers of the Jewish people while Christ was here. Many believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, the people who did not like Christ, they did not confess him. They did not admit that they believed in him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the praise of men more than the praise of God. At some point, you have to determine whose praise you're looking for. 
If you're ambitious for God, then you're looking for God's praise, God's well done someday. But if you're not, you're going to be looking for man's praise, and it's going to curtail your Christianity. It's going to limit your Christianity. From 1 Timothy 6, the love of money is a root, not the root, but a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have even strayed from the faith in their greediness. i got to be honest with you, I hope a lot of you make a lot of money so we can do a lot of things for the Lord. But I hope none of you live for money because it will mess you up. It will make you compromise your faith. And so we have to check that. The world, you know, the, the classic 80s Wall Street money, greed is good. Because it causes people to make money. And in the the reprise of that movie with Michael, whatever his name was, basically he came back and proved that it's still good. And that's the way people are living. Apparently at J.P. Morgan Chase, where they risked losing two to four billion dollars, they also were trying to make two to four billion dollars, apparently they're still greedy. If you're living in the love of money, it is not a godly thing. From 1 Kings, but King Solomon loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. From the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor they with you. Surely they will turn your turn away your hearts after other gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And he had 700 wives, princesses, 300 concubines, and his wife, his wives turned his heart away. Do you love women so much that you're willing to walk away from the faith to have a certain one? God says the worldly man has these loves things that are comfortable, things that look good, things that make you into something. So what is the godly man ambitious for? Well, first of all, the godly man is ambitious for righteousness in his own life. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things or self-controlled. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. The Apostle Paul was working to be righteous. He had an ambition to be personally righteous. This fellow here had an ambition to be the greatest ambition to be the greatest biker in the world. And until this week he was. That's Lance Armstrong. He won the Tour de France seven times. I don't know how long the Tour de France is, some twelve hundred miles or some ridiculous thing where they, they ride a section every day for a long time. Incredible. Um, he won it and won it and won it, and they kept accusing him of doping. If you don't know what doping is, it's some natural compounds and some unnatural compounds. It's even taking blood transfusions. There's all kinds of things that go into it. But the essence is that you do things to your body to enhance your strength and your endurance. And, of course, it's against the rules 
Um, and so he denied, 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 and they could never make anything stick. This week he was formally charged by the international committee that regulates sport and has to do with doping, and they have formally charged him, and they have a testimony from people saying that, yes, he doped himself. Now, why did he do that? So he could win the race. Most important thing in his life was to win the Tour de France and to win it again and to be the most important winning uh, bike rider there was. He was ambitious for those things of this world. Now, the Apostle Paul was that ambitious for righteousness in his own life. He went on in that passage of Scripture to say, I beat my body daily. I don't know if any of you have trouble keeping your body in line, keeping your mind in line, but I can relate to his battle to beat his body daily, to, to take himself in hand. He didn't physically beat himself. All the folks that are doing that today are foolish, even in the name of Christ. But he spiritually, he did battle with himself. So the question I would ask, I would say, look, look here's a guy who just... I mean, nobody's gone farther to succeed than him. And yet, the Apostle Paul said he did it for a perishable crown. At the very least, even if he hadn't been found out to be doping, he would have died, and someday he'd be an asterisk in a book. The Apostle Paul says we are after an imperishable crown. So the question is, how hard are you willing to work to be righteous? Listen to this from Hebrews 12. I haven't quite noticed it so much as I did this week. He says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed in your striving against sin. And he's talking about individuals toward themselves. You haven't yet gone all the way to bloodshed. In other words, you haven't gone that far. And it comes right after this verse. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. Let us lay aside the sin which ensnares us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You want to be a real man? You want to be a godly man? I'll tell you the very first part of it. The very first part is this. Be ambitious to be like Christ. Say, my goal is to be like Christ. Uh, you want to talk about physical strength or strength of spirit? They talk with, the, uh, with this Tour de France, they talk about having the sort of the mental strength to go through this grueling race. What about the man who hung on that cross and went through that grueling difficulty? Is, is there anything... Is there any, did, has any man ever showed any more strength of spirit? That is a real man. And we have Christ in us. We have the ability to be real men. And the, the cornerstone of that is personal godliness. Be ambitious to be like Christ. The second thing that the godly man is ambitious for is righteousness in his family. Righteousness in his family. As you grow up and as God blesses you, 99.9% uh, .9 of, the, of the people in the world get married. And so the odds are you will live in a family even if you're not now. 
or if you're a young man without a family. The family responsibility for the godly man is focused in two areas. First of all, toward his wife. And these words are from that passage where, where God tells men that they are to lead their wives, wives that they are to follow their husbands. But the, the key concept here, I think, is often missed. And here it is. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify or make holy. That's the word we looked at last week, sanctification, to be righteous. God says the purpose of Christ dying on the cross and caring for us is so that we might become holy and be cleansed with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. You want to be a godly man? Work toward righteousness in your wife. Uh, too many men over the years, uh, and frankly, as we talk about the feminist revolution, both outside and inside the church, part of that was good because men got this goofy idea that the home was their castle and they got to rule and they got to tell everybody what to do because God says I'm the leader. And that is not the point of this passage. The point is Christ gave himself for the church so that she might become righteous and husbands are to lay down their lives in loving service to their family. And yes, there's a leadership element, but the leadership is to lead the family toward Christ. The leadership isn't, I'm in charge and I get to do whatever I want to do. The leadership is, God has vested me with a responsibility. I'm supposed to get a hold of my family's hands and say, we're going this way. That's what spiritual leadership is in the home. You want to be a godly man? Be ambitious for the righteousness of your wife. And then God says not only toward your wife, but your children. You fathers, don't provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture, the training, and the admonition of the Lord. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. What is the beginning point of action for a godly husband and father. After his personal pursuit of Christ-like character, he needs to bring his family toward the same. Here's an example in the Old Testament of a man who did not do that. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. If we only went that far, we would know that Eli was not on the ball as a man. But it gets worse. And the priest's custom, you see, Eli was the high priest. And the priestly duties in Israel went in a family, in a tribe. And so if he was a priest, his sons were priests. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling and then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh, the place of worship, to all the Israelites who came there. Now, they're telling you this was the custom. They're not saying this was approved by God. They're saying that's what they did. Also, before they burned the fat, which was part of the sacrifice, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, 
Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you but raw. They didn't want that boiled meat. I'm going to cook it on the grill. Give it to me raw. And if the man said to him, they should really burn the fat first, the sacrifice, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would answer him, no, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the sin of the young man was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Do you understand what was going on? These men, working as priests, stood outside, and when people came along and were doing their sacrifice, they corrupted it by making it something from which they got personal gain. And the net effect was the people went, well, I hate going to the temple. I hate going to that tabernacle. I don't want to go there. Eli should have severely disciplined his sons. It gets worse than that. Now, Eli was very old, and he heard everything his sons did. He heard everything his sons did. And how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Hey, you. It's like an NBA game at the back stage. So Eli said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it's not a good report I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. You shouldn't do that. You know what he should have done. The first time they were out there taking meat that didn't belong to them, he should have severely disciplined them or kicked them out of the priesthood or something. And the first time he heard about them abusing some woman who's come to worship, he, he, he should have done what the Old Testament said, which was stone them. Oh, Pastor Dave, that's awfully harsh. Yes, it is. But it's what God specified. At the very least, he should have stood up and said, Not on my watch. Your children should know by your life and your words and your personal discipline and your discipline of them that they will not get away with a life of sin as much as it depends on you. I knew a man once who had a rebellious, wicked son, and he constantly said, no one will give me the proof of his deeds so that I can do something. I'm summarizing. Later, I found out that that man was living in his own sin. So he had no real stomach to confront the sin of his son. And the results in his life, his son's life, and in many others were terrible. Terrible. You want to be a godly man? Don't just raise your children to be financially successful. Have a higher goal. Don't just raise your children to be artistically talented. Have a higher goal. Don't raise your child to be an Olympic athlete or a famous politician without raising them to be godly. Be ambitious for children who live like Christ. 
And if you're a child here today and your father is guiding you toward Christ, thank God. Thank God even when it's hard because your dad loves you and you will not understand this until you get to be an adult. If your, if your husband is a stickler for righteousness, thank God that he loves you and your family enough to do so. Well, the, the third thing that the godly man is ambitious for is righteousness in the church. Righteousness in the church. And, uh, and I've divided this into three categories. The first I would call foundational righteousness. As the church was being founded in the days and years after Christ, God was revealing his truth and it was being enunciated by the apostles and by other godly men. But as they enunciated godly truth, people came along and pushed back against it and tried to, to add to it, to change it, to, to modify it. And there were a number of times that we read about in Scripture where these, these uh, attempts to change God's truth came to a, a sort of a head of a conflict. Here's one of them in Acts 15. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, you need to understand this if you don't, that in the Old Testament, God commanded the sign or the evidence of, of circumcision, and everybody who was a believing Jew would, would circumcise their boys, and that was an evidence of their faith. They did not get saved by the act of circumcision. But it was an evidence that they had faith in God. The faith saved them, not the act. But what happened was this doctrine got corrupted, and the whole uh, following of the law got corrupted as time went along <coughs> until people started to believe they got saved by doing things. And so the prime thing was circumcision. And <coughs> once Christ came was, and died, was buried and rose again, and, and, and faith in Christ now becomes God's demand for salvation, these folks came along and said, oh yes, you have to believe in Christ and be circumcised. And if you know your scripture, you know that God says, no, <coughs> salvation is not by works, lest any man should boast. And so, so the, the true believers in God were fighting with this doctrine. And so here it comes to a bit of a head. And let's see what Paul does. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others would go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. What do you think that sounded like if you were in the room? I think Paul was there going, well, you know, we, we really don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. You know, people have believed this way for a long time. These ideas are very popular with many people. And, you know, if we really embrace God's doctrine, we might lose some people from the synagogue. No small dissension and dispute. The Apostle Paul said, he took his virtual flag and planted it in the ground, and he said, this is the hill on which I'm going to die, because salvation is by faith alone, through grace alone. 
And he stood his ground, and rightly so, because this was a foundational issue. We talked about this in Sunday school, but the forebears in our church fellowship had to fight this same battle because the, the, the broad church denomination that this church was part of and many others started to go mushy on foundational Bible doctrine. And people had to say, no, we're not going to do that. Real men stood up and said, not on my word. Watch. And what we have to be watching for is the fact that new attacks are mounted on foundational doctrine regularly. And the real men in God's kingdom have to stand up and say, no, this is God's truth. Foundational righteousness. A godly man also has to be ambitious for what I've termed fellowship righteousness in the body of Christ. And here's what I mean. From Galatians chapter 2, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who are of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Now what this is talking about is relationship in the body of Christ. And there were those people who were still stuck on circumcision and the Old Testament law who said, now the Jewish people, they're God's chosen people. And the Gentiles, well, I, I guess they can believe in Christ too, but we're not going to sit down and eat with them. Because in the Old Testament it said, don't have anything to do with those dirty Gentiles. Didn't quite say that, but that's kind of the impression they got. And so there was division in the body of Christ. And Peter, the irony, if you don't remember this from the book of Acts, the irony is Peter is the very man whom God gave a special revelation to so that he would see, oh, everybody's invited into the body of Christ. Remember the vision with the, with the sheet coming down and all the different animals, some clean and some unclean by the Old Testament standard? And God said, arise and eat. And he said, no, that's unclean. And, and God said, Whatever I say is clean is clean. And, and then right after that, here comes this Gentile saying, will you please show me the way of Christ? And Peter went, oh, I get it. We're all equal in the body of Christ. And the Apostle Paul knew that as well. I mean, the Apostle Paul was a Hebrew of the Hebrews and, uh, and, and the ultimate Jewish guy. If anybody should have been fighting for Jewish separatism, it would be him. But he said, no, that's wrong. And so when Peter caved in to the pressure of people, the Apostle Paul stood up and said, not on my watch. We are all equal in the body of Christ, and any doctrine that teaches otherwise is a heresy, and it should be opposed. The third area of righteousness in the church is this, what I would call character righteousness in the church. I, I couldn't think of, a, of an F word to make it uh, all alliterated there. Sorry about that, but... Uh, you crossword people can come up with one later on. Christianity is not just a set of beliefs that stand alone in the mind or the heart. Right doctrine affects life. And in the beginning of the church especially, there was this pushback going on. And so all kinds of sin was coming and going and, and needed to be dealt with. And here's one example in the church. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles. 
was real wickedness, that a man has his father's wife. Now, we don't know if that was his mother or his stepmother, but something like that. And you, you, the church, are puffed up. I, I really have never been able to get my head around how a church could be puffed up about that situation. The only thing I could come up with is, we're sophisticated. You know, that's how the world talks about all these things. Oh, we're, you know, we're not like those uh, people who are homophobic. We're sophisticated. You're puffed up, and you have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from you. For I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged, as though I were present, him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus is that a little harsh? To our way of thinking, that's pretty harsh. Now, for those of you that might be newer to the things of the Lord, what he's saying here is, God says that once you become a child of God, you're never going to stop being a child of God. But there are times when, God will, when you sin so badly that God is going to judge you with physical death. And the idea was that a church can excommunicate, that is to declare someone not part of the church. They're put out in the world. And perhaps what we understand is that God says, that person is, I'm not going to take care of that person anymore. I'm going to let them experience the sin that they've been investing in. And they are delivered to Satan, and Satan just throws it all at them. And the result is the destruction of their flesh. Now here's my point today. That's how serious God is about sin in the church. Paul didn't wring his hands. Oh, I don't know what we're going to do. Somebody's living in sin. Oh, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. The godly man is gracious and loving and resolute about righteousness in himself, in his family, and in the church. I've had the opportunity to, to study at the National Fire Academy, and one of the classes I took was on fire safety education. And we learned methods to teach people to be safe with fire, all kinds of things. But the one thing I learned that, that really has stuck with me was teach one thing. Especially if you're teaching children, you go into a school and you're going to teach them how to, how to handle matches properly when they find a book of matches on the ground. He said, teach them one thing. Don't teach them stop, drop, and roll and how to handle matches and what to do if you see a fire. Don't teach them all those things. Teach them one thing. When I studied homiletics... They said, try to say one thing. That's a real discipline for some of us. <laughs> but I believe that's what God is trying to get across today, and that is this. You want to be a godly man? Do one thing. Be ambitious for righteousness in yourself, in your home, in your church. 
We all have many interests, rightly so. I have a family. I have a home. I have a job. I have an organization I volunteer for. We all have many interests. But the question today is, how many ambitions do you have? And I believe God would challenge us to have one, and it's for righteousness. Heavenly Father, help us to be godly men. Help us not to just get by. Help us to strive after godliness in ourselves, in our home, in our churches. Oh, Father, help us. Help us to be the men you want to be and help our church to become the church you want it to be as the men take the lead in being righteous. I pray in Christ's name, amen.